Well, if you had to pick a text that best encapsulates the book of Hebrews in three verses, this would most likely be it. Amidst all of the navigation of deep theology and wonderful prose, theology proper, the understanding of man, what Christ has done, this, this little paragraph seems to summarize it all. In fact, if, if the book of Hebrews was, was bound in a hardback, this would be the summary on the inside jacket. And it sets us up for the very next phase of the book on the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And in fact, it's this high priesthood that becomes the very foundation, the very empowerment for why we are to obey and why we have the ability to obey the two imperatives that we're going to see in these three verses. Let me say that again because I know we're, we're, we're sort of getting settled here. This is going to talk about uh, the high priesthood of Christ. And we need to understand that that is the very foundation. It is the very object of our faith. It's, it's what gives us the ability to do that which he is going to call us to do. If you read it outside of the concept of high priest, you won't get it. You'll bootstrap this. You'll drift into moralism. You can just sort of gut it up amid suffering, but understanding that it is his high priesthood, that Jesus Christ is more than just a Savior who died on the cross. Not that I want to minimize that at all, but his ministry continues today. And that is essential for the Christian life. It is especially essential amid suffering. You see, it is his personhood and position as our great high priest that will help us, two things this morning, hold fast to the confession and comprehension of Christ. That would be our first point. Since Jesus is our great high priest, we can hold fast. Get that picture in your mind. That sailor again. That hold fast to the rigging. Hold fast to what? Two things. Confession and comprehension of Christ. And then the next imperative. Since he is our great high priest, we have the ability to draw near. And so the picture I like to paint here is, again, it's a nautical one. It's that sailor grabbing onto that really, really thick braided ship's rigging, holding fast amid the storm, but then doing this, drawing near it, <clears throat> getting closer and closer to where it is tied down. The Christian life, if the warning is do not drift, the Christian life is about this picture of holding fast to our confession and our comprehension of Christ and drawing near with confidence to the throne of grace. Those are the two things we're going to hit this morning. You're probably thinking, well, I, haven't we heard something about holding fast before and drawing near? And, and, and yeah, didn't we hit something about Jesus as a high priest? And I would say, yes. But this is a sermon and like a good preacher, 
He's repetitive in all the right areas. And hopefully not repetitive in the wrong areas. And of course, because it's written by the Holy Spirit, it is in exactly the right areas that we need it. Let's look at the first point together. Hold fast to the confession and comprehension of Christ. Verse 14, therefore, stop right there, therefore. Let me bring us up to speed, because if you're like me, you forgot last week's sermon. Really, Pastor, you forgot last week's sermon? I do. I'm a leaky vessel, even though I've spent time in it, and I need this refreshment. And I keep hearing from y'all in, in a very positive sense, hey, Pastor, don't get tired of repeating for a few minutes last week, I need it. I need the context. If we're about verse-by-verse verse exposition, remind me where we've been. Tell me where we're going. And then help me dive deep into where we are. Amen? All right. So, therefore, what's been going on the last two weeks? Well, from 3-7 to 4-13 or 4-14, however you want to cut it, that is a pericope. That's a section. And what we saw was professing believers who, watch this, develop an unbelieving or hard heart. Okay? Hard arteries leading to a hard heart. Spiritual hardening of the arteries. And that results in God's wrath abiding on them. And number three, being unable to enter God's rest. What we saw was an Old Testament illustration and a New Testament exhortation. Don't harden your hearts like the Israelites. They took us to Psalm 95, and from that we went to Numbers 14, and we saw an illustration. Don't harden your hearts, first century Jewish believers, probably in Rome, probably in a house church. Don't do it. Don't drift. Don't drift and harden your hearts like those in Numbers 14. And of course, they're Jews. They're like, I know Numbers 14. I learned that growing up in the synagogue. That's when the 12 spies went in for 40 days into the promised land. Everyone was real excited. They had made the journey. It took about a year. I'm no longer a slave. I made it through the Red Sea. We went around Mount Sinai. We got the Ten Commandments. We got the, the tabernacle. Now we get to go to the promised land. What kind of report did they get? It was a no-go, wasn't it? You imagine what you must have felt like if you were sitting there you're with bated breath, waiting this report. And you got ten Eeyores up on stage. Ooh, it's not great at all. It's terrible. I like it. You know, anytime someone starts out with, no doubt... No doubt this land certainly does flow with milk and honey. Couldn't you just stop right there? You know, I, I, I wonder, as they're reading this, because you know they prepared a statement. As they're reading this, was the sun blocked by the pillar of cloud that they weren't trusting? You kinda, it kind of makes you wonder, right? That's the irony in all this. No doubt this land certainly does flow with milk and honey. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and there are giants in the land. Translation, say it with me. 
It's not safe. God can't do it. It's not safe. And except for Joshua and Caleb, the rest did not want to do it. The people did not want to do it, Numbers 14. Hey, let's appoint someone that will take us back to Egypt. So when we see therefore, we have to go back and understand that. We have to understand that timeless truth that the church needs to have a healthy fear of consequences of disobedience so that they will hold fast to the word of God. So if I could sum the last two weeks, that would be it. You might say that the church or the people of God need to have a healthy fear of the consequences of disobedience so that they will hold fast to the word of God. That though they may claim to be believers, that eternal rest does not await those who don't cross the Jordan, those who turn back. Justification is unconditional. Christians persevere. So let's, let's, do, let's do something interesting. Take your Bibles. You might want to write this. Let's supplant, therefore, with a summary of the last two weeks so that these three verses really have the kick they're supposed to. Verse 14. Since there are grave consequences for those who drift, and since we have the most powerful of helpers, our great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. That, that would be verse 14. Okay? Since there are great grave consequences, and since we have the most powerful of helpers, our great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast our confession. Let's, let's move this out of the academic realm here. We've seen this word before, confession. Write down Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Think about Jesus, the apostle, the sent one, and the high priest of our confession. We don't use that term confession much anymore. But in its simplest form, it means confessing Christ as Lord and Savior. It's our vow of commitment. It was when we came to Christ where we turned from sin and self-worship and we bowed the knee. We placed our faith and trust. We confessed. What did the, the early church confess? Jesus is Lord. Think about it that way. So when it says, hold fast to our confession. Hold fast to who Jesus is. To what we said we believed to the captain of our salvation. And Metro Bible Church is like this. I'm with you, Pastor. Next, I got that down. And I'm going to say, now we're going to hang here a little bit. Because we cannot understand what it means to hold fast to our confession unless we understand what it means to hold loosely our confession. Okay? Am I the only one? I'm going to beat the Christianese out of us, right? We're so used to things. Oh, yeah, I got that down. Yeah, I got that card that says I walked the aisle, you know, at camp and the whole bit. Like, no, 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 hold on, hold on. Hold fast 
Well, what does hold fast mean in comparison to hold loosely? Well, if we said confession is, is literally our vow, it, it's, it's a statement of what we believe. It's a statement, not a, not a thought of what we believe. That means it's verbal. Christians verbally confess Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's a proclamation before men. I read it earlier. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A confession is audible. It is taking the truth, the vertical truth of what we believe. That would be the teaching, you might say, of the Great Commission. And then it takes the horizontal, the making disciples of the Great Commission, being baptized. Let's, let's put it this way. It's not enough to agree with a set of facts. It's actually bowing the knee of your heart and then opening your, your mouth and proclaiming before men. When someone comes to Christ, if I ever have the pleasure of, of leading someone to Christ, whether in my study or in conversation, first of all, I always caution them as to the cost of coming to Christ. It's not always going to be easier, but Jesus will care for you. You will suffer, but Jesus will take care of you. But if you want to do this, I don't want to be the only one that knows about it. I want you to go home and tell your folks. I want you to tell your husband. I want you to tell your coworkers. And oftentimes you see this, whoa, 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 hold on. Hey, I thought Christianity was personal and private, right? Oh, it's personal, but it's not private. Confession is loud. This is why we say Christians are not shy, okay? Shyness is, I, 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 I care what people think. You know, I don't want to say, no, no, no. Christians are loud about their faith. I didn't say obnoxious, but I said loud. There's no me and Jesus attitude. So holding a confession loosely would show itself with a low view of your commitment, a low view of the word of God, a low view of sin, a fear of man, affections that are placed in the world, a me and Jesus attitude with regards to coming and being part of the church. Think about it. If a confession was always accompanied by being with the body of Christ, and this day 3,000 souls were saved, and they were what? Fellowshipping, gathering together, breaking bread, eating meals. Hey, that's time together. You're like, well, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. It's like, then you don't love Jesus. But you don't know what the church has done, done to me. Oh, I, I probably do, and it was probably bad. Well, it's full of hypocrites. It's okay, there's room for one more. Come on in. But the point is this. If you love Jesus, you'll love his sheep. You'll love the lost. You'll be vocal. I want you to think about this before we go any further. How many Christians, quote unquote, in your circle hold their confession loosely? Friends, family, co-workers would claim to be believers and never go to church. 
That's holding your confession loosely. Would claim to be believers and never crack their Bible. That's holding your confession loosely. Would claim to be believers and never open their home. That's holding your confession loosely. And the way the author of Hebrews says it is that if you hold your confession loosely, you're going to drift from the high priest of your confession. And neglecting is rejecting. It's only a matter of time. This is, this is not me. This is not my interpretation. This is not my systematic theology. This is the warp and the woof of Hebrews. It is a pastor who is preaching a written sermon because he dearly loves these believers. And he's going to treat them like believers. He knows the suffering they're going through. He bleeds for them. He hurts for them. And yet he says, Christians persevere. Christians hold fast. Don't think that you can hold it loosely and drift away and eternal rest awaits. And then he encourages us the whole time by wrapping this package in this concept of Jesus, the high priest. This, this is what's so amazing. He can, he can give these really strong exhortations, but then he can say, may I remind you what I'm calling you to hold fast to? Our great high priest. Our great high priest. What does a high priest do? What did he do in the Old Testament? High priest was the one mediator between God and man. He was the one guy that could bridge the gap. Once a year, once a year, he would offer a sacrifice for himself. He would then go from the outer courts into the holy place and then on past through the veil to the Holy of Holies. And for a brief amount of time, he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat and symbolically atone for the, son, for the sins of Israel. And God's wrath was satisfied until the true Passover lamb came. Now, what does our great high priest do? He is the one mediator between God and man. He is the one who bridges the gap, but not annually and not just once a year, but it is finished once and for all. And we now have access every day, every hour to our great God. So when he says, hold fast, he's saying, it's because you got a great high priest who is actually holding on to you. And when he says, draw near, he says, it's because you actually have a great high priest who is pulling you near. It, it provides this amazing, great confidence. And he wraps it in, hold fast to your confession. What's the confession? Person and work of Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he did. What does it look like for us today? Well, we just read our covenant. That's how we behave. All that is is the, the one another's, the 39 one another's of Scripture. But what do you call that document as to what we believe? 
a doctrinal statement, right? So what does it look, look like for us to hold fast to what we believe? Well, I pulled a portion out of our doctrinal statement. Talking about Jesus Christ. The eternal Son of God became incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ, being born of a virgin, Mary, and is true God and true man. He died physically on the cross and was bodily resurrected three days later. God became man, incarnated in human flesh, died on the cross, was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Now look at verse 14 again. Who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. The Jews understood exactly what he was talking about. Hold fast to your confession. Let me put it real plainly. Your confession, it's what you're willing to die for. There's not much we would die for. What you believe should be what you're willing to die for. You may fight all the way up into the point. You are pinned down. There's a gun to your head. But if someone says you deny the person or the work of Jesus Christ or you die, then you say, then I die. Hold fast. That's the same word as in John 20 where Mary Magdalene sees the resurrected Christ. And you remember what she does? She clings to him. And he says, stop clinging to me. I haven't yet ascended to the Father. And she doesn't want to let go. Let go. He's saying, hold fast to that confession. Should everything disappear, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt. Should I lose all my friends? Should everyone turn against me? Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Now, I have no doubt that many of these first century Jews, and hopefully all of us, would be willing to die for our confession. Can I get an amen? Amen. Yeah, I know we're all a little nervous about it, but yes, amen. Here's the question. But are we willing to live for our confession? And that's what's at stake here. Because that's why this first century church was drifting. The suffering is just, it's too painful. The expectation of what might happen is just too stressful. If I hold fast, meaning if I am boldly vocal about my confession of who Jesus is and what he did, it's going to hurt It's going to hurt me in my social circles. It's going to hurt me at work. It's going to hurt me with my family. I mean, we already know from the book of Hebrews that that many have lost property. And so they want to hold it loosely. They want to, uh, well, they're tempted to, to back away a little bit. As my wife says, to wear beige. Just kind of disappear. Not to be so vocal about things, right? I don't have to speak up all the time. Frankly, when you don't confess, people could care less, right? If you don't confess, there's no suffering. 
If you're not bold about your faith, well, you don't get persecuted. If you don't stand with the church, then the, the world won't try to knock you down. Suffering disappears. But the author of Hebrews says, so does eternal rest. There's something else here to which we are to hold fast that is also a tremendous encouragement. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. We not only hold fast to our confession, person and work of Jesus Christ, but we hold fast to our comprehension of who Jesus is meaning in, in what he experienced. And it says that there's two things about him that we really need to remember that will encourage us, not from afar, but from very nearby through this suffering. One, he is a sympathetic high priest who has experienced our weaknesses. When Jesus became a man... Though free from sin, he nevertheless experienced the pains of a fallen world. His stomach growled and was in pain when he went without food. He got cotton mouth when he didn't drink water. There's no question that he injured himself, perhaps spraining a wrist, tearing an Achilles tendon. There's no question that he probably threw his back out doing manual labor. Maybe he had regular migraines. He grew exhausted and weary with travel. His feet hurt. People wore him out. He got tired of crowds. But because of all of these weaknesses that he has experienced, he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, with our frailties, and come to our aid. And whatever you've experienced, I'll promise you, Christ has experienced more. If not specifically, principally. If you felt pain, he's felt it more. If you felt rejected, he's felt it more. He understands. He's also one, he's a sinless high priest who has experienced our temptation. You think about his temptations in the wilderness. Ultimately, they can be summed with Hey, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, confession, cut short the pain. Cut short the suffering. Go around the cross. I've provided ways, Prince of the Power of the Air said. You don't really need to absorb the Father's wrath. There's ways you can be King Messiah. There's ways you can be popular, things you can do. You can win the crowds. Hey, just bow and I'll give it to you. What about in Gethsemane? The temptation to quit. He had all of these temptations principally and yet was without sin, meaning he endured the full measure he knows what we go through. And because of this, he is able to come to our aid with what? Two things. Mercy and grace. And I love that both are included there. Mercy, not getting what we deserve. How many times can we point to things in our life and like, yeah, I deserve those consequences. And yet, how many times has he come to us with mercy? But then he also comes to us with grace. The power of God to help us overcome. To endure 
to have the peace that passes all understanding. And so we have this wonderful sympathetic high priest and we have this sinless high priest. He understands our weaknesses. He understands our temptations. And he says, don't just hold fast to this doctrinal confession, but also hold fast to the fact that Jesus, who is the creator of the universe, is also very nearby and has experienced all that you've experienced. And he is ready and able to come to your aid. So imagine with me that we are the first century Jewish believers in Rome. It's A.D. 64. And you and I are part of the Mount Zion New Covenant Church right on the east side of the Forum, okay? Just a little north of the Colosseum, east side of the Forum. And we meet in the upstairs of a dry goods every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. You say, what, do we miss the morning service? Well, remember... Sunday is not a holiday for another 150 years. So we've all put in a full day's worth of work. About 20 of us gather. We share a meal together. Lord's table. We sing. We sit under the word of God. And we fellowship. But people are discouraged. What does it look like for them to hold fast to their confession and their comprehension of Jesus Christ? I'm going to force us again. What does it look like for them to hold loosely to it? So that we can understand. To hold loosely would mean they're going to just start keeping their mouths shut at work. And then when they get with their friends and their family, they're just not going to say anything. And this regular time of gathering for worship, we're just going to make it irregular and come when it's convenient. We're going to laugh a little bit at those dirty jokes. We're going to start to follow that which is popular. Look more like the world, not stand out so much. Certainly, we're not going to witness. Unless someone asks me, I'm praying for an opportunity. What does that mean? Someone comes up and says, can you tell me how to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know what an opportunity means? They've got a pulse and you're in the same room. To live boldly would be to, to do just that. To actually turn up the volume of their confession. To sing more loudly. To prepare for Sunday on Saturday. To read more in the Word of God. To pray longer. To invite the most unlikely potential convert they know to church. No, better yet, to their home first and then to church. To rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. I wrote this down here. I said, they swing for the fences. They increase their commitment. They put a smile on their face and rejoice. They get used to rejection. They live for him in the midst of suffering. So in Metro Bible, what does it look like for us? We swing for the fences. We witness to the least likely potential convert. We put a smile on our face and rejoice. You get the, you get the point? We do the same thing. We may not be enduring suffering, but we do the same thing. 
We hold fast. And hold fast means living loud for Christ. Trusting in His person and His work and that He understands. But that's only the half of it. We got a few minutes? Look at the next one. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Verse 16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our great high priest has ripped the veil of the Holy of Holies. Hebrews 7.25, he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Not just once a year, but he is in the throne room of the Godhead and he is interceding for us. What drawing near is actually talking about is prayer. Anytime, day or night, corporately drawing near in prayer. In fact, the way it's written in the Greek, it's continually draw near. It translates that, that, that confidence is a bold frankness. And here's the interesting thing. In classical Greek, it was only used to describe conversation between you and me. A very open, frank, and honest discussion. It was the Jews who said, that's what prayer should look like. And they started to use this word, confidence, for talking about how we pray to God. George Mueller said it this way, there has never been a time that I've been unable to get an audience with the king. There's never been a time that I've been unable to get an audience with the king. He was a man of prayer. Hey, you know, we have this need. Let's pray about it. Hey, this has come up. Let's pray about it and see what the Lord will do. Now, do you realize how crazy that is? I mean, think about it. I'm a commoner. And I'm supposed to be able to enter the throne room, not just of a regular king, but with the God of the universe anytime and speak boldly and frankly. This does not fit our concept of throne rooms. David McCall wrote the biography on John Adams and he describes after the Revolutionary War, John Adams went to London and was able to get a meeting with King George III. Let me read to you what this looked like for a Massachusetts man of the colonies. A common Yankee finally gets an appointment with the king, and here's what it looks like. The man led Adam into the king's chamber. He needs someone to take him in. As etiquette dictated, Adam bowed to the king three times. Once upon entering, again halfway across the room, and finally when he reached the king's throne. He presented his credentials and began his speech by conveying his countrymen's best wishes for the king's health and happiness. And when he left, the king signaled that the meeting was over. Adam, according to etiquette, had to walk backwards out of the room, an absurd maneuver required by courtly etiquette. And this was for, I'm sorry, Shane, mad King George, okay? I just had to throw that in there. And yet we get to go before the God of the universe anytime and say, Lord, I need you. Will you hear me now? 
Can I express to you how I feel? Can I tell you what hurts? Can I ask you to strengthen my faith? I believe. Help my unbelief. Bold frankness. Look, we, we, we all know the story of, let me give you one more illustration, of Martin Luther and the 95 Theses. What you may not realize is the events after that. Of course, he received a, a papal bull which said you either recant this, you're a heretic, 41 of these sentences are heresy, either recant it or you will be excommunicated. He was then summoned to the Diet of Worms in 1521 and he appeared before Charles V and bishops and he was called to recant his writings and his 95 Theses. You know how it turned out. He did not recant. But what you may not realize is that he asked for a night to think about it. Why? He knows what happens to heretics in the Roman Catholic Church. It doesn't end well. And he entered the throne room with confidence that night. He wrote his prayer down. Can I read it to you? Oh God, almighty God, everlasting, how dreadful is the world. Behold how its mouth opens to swallow me up and how small my faith is in thee. Oh, the weakness of my flesh and the power of Satan. If I am to depend upon any strength of this world, all is over. The knell is struck. Sentence has gone forth. Oh God, oh God, oh thou, my God, help me against the wisdom of the world. Do this, I beseech thee. Thou shouldst do this by thy own mighty power. The work is not mine, but thine. I have no business here. I have nothing to contend for with these great men of the world. I would gladly pass my days in happiness and peace. But the cause is thine, and in it righteousness and everlasting. O oh Lord, help me. O oh faithful and unchangeable God, I lean not upon man, it were vain. Whatever uh, is of man is tottering. Whatever proceeds from him must fail. My God, my God, dost thou not hear, my God? Art thou no longer living? Nay, thou canst not die. Thou dost but hide thyself. Thou, thou hast chosen me for this work. I know it. Therefore, O God, accomplish thine own will. Forsake me not for the sake of thy well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, my defense, my buckler, my stronghold. Lord, where art thou? My God, where art thou? Come, I pray thee, I am ready. Behold, I am prepared to lay down my life for thy truth, suffering like a lamb, for the cause is holy. It is thine own. I will not let thee go. No, now, not now, not for eternity. And though the world should be thronged with devils and this body, which the, is the work of thy hands, should be cast forth, trodden underfoot, cut in pieces, consumed to ashes, my soul is thine. Yes, I have thine own word to assure me of it. My soul belongs to thee and I will abide with thee forever. Amen. Oh God, send help. Amen. Is that bold frankness? Is that a man who was suffering and saw death standing before him? Which, by the way, they had planned to kill Luther. And he knew it. 
I was expecting when I saw this to be some, yes, passionate but great theological treatise. This sounds like just a common bricklayer crying out to God that knows one thing. I'm hurting, I'm desperate, and you can save me. Please save me. I want to hear from you. And the next day, his confession went like this when they asked him again. They said, recant, you heretic. And he had received God's grace. And he said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in popes or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen.